Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite, Profile Theater's online supplementary magazine. Satellite is where you will come for interviews with artists, activists, and educators, and whoever else might give you a deeper understanding of the work that Profile puts on the stage, or in these troubled times, over the internet. At Profile Theater, we spend an entire season exploring the work of a given playwright. Our best artists help us see. And at Profile, each year, we use a different writer's unique perspective as a lens that helps us see our shared world in new and surprising ways. With Satellite, Profile is always looking for new avenues to deepen our audience's experience of the art, pulling back the curtain, providing insight, and giving our audience a glimpse of the act of creation. And now, welcome to Satellite. Greetings, Earthlings. This is Bobby Bermea with Satellite Beyond the Page, uh, Profile Theater's online magazine where we uh, take the audience on a deeper dive into the world of our play. And of course, we're exploring the world of Brandon Jacobs Jenkins' Gloria. Um, today, we will have, we'll be speaking to um, Kelsey Ashenbrenner from the Soulbox Project, which you will learn more about in the interview. And we'll be talking to John Cole, Stage Combat choreographer who does a lot of work um, around Portland and, and also has a lot of other things going on. But we'll be hearing about some of the work that he's doing on Gloria. And then we'll ta be talking to uh, therapist and feminist Amanda Soden about uh, women in the world and why they do or do not <laughs> do mass killings. Okay, and here we go. Greetings, Earthlings. Welcome to Satellite. And today, um, our guest is Kelsey Ashenbrenner. Hello, Kelsey. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you for coming on. Thank you for coming on. Um, uh, Kelsey, I have heard your name, and I've heard that you are an artist. Um, uh, and I see that you're expecting. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, but I actually know very little about you. So if you could just tell me, like, like first, um, who Kelsey Ashenbrenner is and in, uh, in, um, your life as an artist and where you come from and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a theater maker, um, director, youth educator, just work in nonprofit. And yes, about to have a baby in a few weeks here. Um, and Congratulations. I grew up, Thank you. Yes. So um, I work with Third Rail in town and the soul box project. So that's kind of my nonprofit admin work that I do, but otherwise um, just kind of a divisor theater maker actor. And um, are you a Portland native? No, I'm not actually. I grew up in Reno, Nevada. So that's where I grew up until um, late middle school. And then I moved to Oregon, not in the Portland area, but in the South uh, Willamette Valley. And then I moved to Portland in 2019. And you've been a theater artist that whole time. Yes, basically since I was a little kid, just um, dressing up and pretty much being a clown ever since I was young. But I really got into theater in high school and then I did that in college. Oh, you do clown work. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. So I recently did some clown last weekend, actually, um, as part of Coho Nightlife with um, a collaborator that I work with. So, Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so how did you how did you wind up with uh, Third Rail? 
Um, so actually, I started working with them right after I moved up here in 2019, working in the box office and front of house. And so that's how I started on their admin team. And that's where I've been ever since. And now my role has kind of evolved to um, producing the hashtag enough uh, teen writing series that we just had and producing the readings that uh, of 10 minute plays on gun violence that teens have written and um, doing more of that kind of work. Uh, 10 minute plays on gun violence. Yeah. So hashtag enough is a nationwide project that um, encourages teens to write 10 minute plays on the topic of gun violence on any subject that they have desire. It's just their voice, their opinion on gun violence. And um, last year was the first year of it. And they collected, I think it was like 200 plays. And from those 200 selected seven to be read nationwide all at the same time on the anniversary of Sandy Hook. And so that happened last December and Third Rail produced a reading. And so I kind of led that there and we're doing it again this year and the reading will happen in April. So Soapbox Project, um, can you tell us a little bit about how that started, uh, where it came from, where, where it's going and how you wound up there? Yeah. Yeah. So the Soulbox Project is a Portland-based nonprofit. It's an arts organization. It was started in 2017. The founder, Leslie Lee, she had seen the numbers of injuries and atrocities at the Las Vegas concert shooting. And when she was looking at the numbers of how many people were killed and injured there and how many have been killed and injured across the U.S. in past years, she just thought, you know, our minds are not equipped to handle these numbers and really be able to put them into people. Like, these numbers are people. It's, you know, X amount of people are killed per year. It's like 70,000 are killed or injured in a year, something like that. And that number is just huge. You can't really physicalize it into a person. The numbers start to just jumble up. And so her thought with that, because she's an artist, is to create these large exhibits of soul boxes. And so a soul box is an origami folded box that can be decorated and put someone's name and photo on it. It's a small memorial for this person who was killed or injured in gun violence. And we display them in large exhibits together to show people the numbers, the magnitude, the expanse of this problem that our country has with gun violence, whether it be um, someone who's passed from suicide or um, an accident. Like we have boxes of small children who have found a gun, Um, family members whose child or brother or sister or mother was killed in a mass shooting or in um you know, in some sort of community violence um, incident, we have every, like, we've seen boxes for every kind of incident. So um, we collect them, and it's a way for people who are family or friends to 
honor and memorialize their loved one. And it's extremely healing as well to just make the box and hold it and know that, you know, this person counts like their life, their life matters. And I'm going to hold this box and I made it for them. And it's going to be in an exhibit with, with others. Uh, It sounds uh, really powerful. How did she get, um, what was the name again? Leslie. Leslie. How did Leslie Mm -hmm. get other people involved? You know, that's a good question. She just kind of started with her group of, of friends, I think, and folks around her. And then, you know, the word just spread and grew and she's had hundreds of volunteers in in really starting in Portland of people making boxes. But it's gone national in October. We took the exhibit of 200,000 boxes to Washington, D.C., and there were boxes sent in, I think, from almost 40 states to be included in that exhibit. You know, people heard about it in California or New York or um, Delaware and D.C., and they sent their boxes in to be included in the exhibit. Um, all, all of that sounds incredible. And I remember uh, last year, um, because uh, Ellen Bai mm-hmm. is also a part of the Soulbox Project, right? Yes, um, yes. W- what is her role with it? She is just an avid supporter. Mm-hmm. She has been so influential in getting people to come over to her house and make boxes. Mm-hmm. That's how I first made a soul box is the third rail staff. We went over, um, it was January 2020, I think, when she just had that open house of having people come in however many days a week and, and make boxes. So that's how. That's how that I was your it. introduction. It was, yes. So it spoke to you a little bit. It did. Yes. So um, that day was very powerful. I had never heard about Soulbox before, never knew about this very creative, hands-on, healing, meditative process of thinking and talking about gun violence. So um, that day there with the third rail staff, we were making boxes. We were talking. The conversation was just so safe. Everyone was, you know, really feeling what we were doing, the magnitude of what it was. And I have a personal experience with a school shooting and I had never revealed that really to anyone other than close friends and um, obviously my family members. But that day I was able to, you know, I felt like I could talk about it because of the folding and the community that was there. That must, that must've been harrowing. It was, it was very difficult. And I don't think I mentioned it until the very end when we were like wrapping up. I was just like, I feel compelled to tell everyone like what this meant to me today. And there must've been jaws dropped everywhere. Oh yeah. Yeah. No one had, expected that at all because I had never mentioned it. And for a long time, um, you know, it was even something difficult to speak about in my family um, just because of what had happened. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, you know, and it's, and it's uh, like, cause like what you were talking about, about, about the using the boxes as a way to make the numbers real. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I, I feel like, you know, that is, uh, is, is is such an important thing, you know? I mean, because this kid in, was it Michigan? 
who just mm-hmm. uh, who just um, killed some classmates or whatever. You know, like the first time, it just, you know, and uh, you know, I hesitate to say, it, but it was, but it was just, you know, like I literally had to, oh, another school shooting. Yes. You know, emotional and, and you know, and the, you know, and the emotional right after that was like, what is wrong with you? What has happened to you? You know, uh, like me as a person, just myself, you know, and then um, us as a nation and that nation as a community, you know, why is this acceptable? Yes. You know, um, and, and um, I wonder how many people nowadays are going to are going to be like, oh, yeah, well, I, 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 you know, I went through that, you know, and mm-hmm. um, man, I remember years ago when the, the third Batman movie came out, you know, um, me and my lady went on that opening night, we did the three day, the three movie marathon and mm-hmm. everything. And the last, you know, and then, you know, the next day when you hear about this shooting that happened and you're like, Oh my God. I mean, that's what we were doing. We were just yes. out having fun, you know, and, and this has become part of an, of American life. Yeah. That is the thought that a lot of people have is like, that could have been me. I mean, especially with school shootings and things like that, like hearing from the teens that write, those 10 minute plays for hashtag enough, that topic comes up a lot. That could be me. So, and, and that exactly. I've thought that in movie theaters before in different places, because these shootings are happening constantly all over it. You do become numb to it in some ways, because it is something that happens so often it's in the news for a couple days, then it goes away. Then it's the next one and nothing seems to happen to change it. Uh, you said that the soul boxes went to DC. Yes. Um, uh, what was the the intention or the goal behind doing that, and was it achieved? Yeah. So the goal there was to have the nation really see what our project is doing. That art can be healing. That art can be effective to show the message of this is the magnitude of the issue of gun violence and gunfire in our country and. Thousands of people came and showed up and we were able to flood the media there with the project and stories of family members who came and and saw their child's box and how meaningful that was to them. And so it was really about showing people this is what we're doing. You can make a box for someone that you know who has been killed or injured and there can be healing there and how this it's a visual project it's very colorful Mm -hmm. the boxes are decorative they have beautiful photos on them they have everyone's name they you know some people have stitched lovely flowers or what have you on them so it's colorful it's beautiful it's a wonderful way to honor and memorialize people and we want other organizations who do you know the statistics or who do the legislation to use what we have and say, you know, this is effective. Let's get it in front of legislators to show them what the community is doing because it was made by people all over the country. So it's community made, it's grassroots created and you feel like you have a part of it. And just you putting it like that, it it, it just makes me think, you know, I feel like so often um, in this country uh, we get, we are addicted to our capacity to destroy things and that Soulbox project has taken the same impulse and we're like, we're going to create something beautiful mm-hmm. out of it and impactful that will change things. It's uh super powerful. 
Yeah, because gunfire is so destructive. Gun violence, it, it, it destroys things. And so this is a way to make those people remembered. And it's in a beautiful, very loving way when you see the boxes. You can't help but see the love that someone put into the box that they made. Right. Uh, what's next for Soulbox Project? So next is we have our panels of boxes and they are ready to go across the country. So that's kind of the next goal is hopefully another exhibit here in Portland for people to see these soul boxes and to create more boxes for people in our community who have been affected by gun violence. Um, it can go and travel across the country. I'd love to see, you know, this these exhibits of soul boxes happening in schools and universities and community centers, churches, really anywhere, museums, for people to see what's going on. And we hope that it changes people's decisions on how they think about gun violence. So we don't we don't say anything political. We don't say, you know, you have to not have a gun ever and take them all away. That's not it at all. It's if you have one, you should lock it up. Be safe with it because you can see what can happen if you are irresponsible with it or, you know, change your heart about, um, you know, if you have a friend who may be struggling, reach out to them, like check in on people. It's one of those things. It's kind of a, a simple message of we don't want any more boxes. Like you don't want your friend or family member to end That's up right. on a box. Like change your actions. Talk about it with your friends. Hopefully legislators will see it and it'll change how they think and how they act and the decisions that they make. Obviously, because you, you would hope that regardless of what side of the political spectrum you are, you obviously want the gun violence to stop. Totally. Yeah. It's like, I think gun owners should be the most vocal sure. about this. Like, you know, you should be responsible with it because it's such a big burden to carry. How can folks listening help out Soulbox Project? Yes. So we have our website, soulboxproject.org. You can go there. You can um, find information about making a box. If you want to make a box for a loved one, if you want to get an exhibit up somewhere, if you want to know about things happening locally in Portland, or we have um, volunteers all over the country, like Moms Demand Action is a huge supporter, and they'll have exhibits sometimes. And so all of that information can be on the website or on our social media, and you can find out more there about what we have going on and how you can get involved. Uh, and Soulbox Project uh, website is? Soulboxproject.org. Great. Yeah. Um, uh, Kelsey Ashenbrenner, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for your work and thank you for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. That was Kelsey Ashenbrenner. And let's take a short break and we'll be right back with John Cole. Domestic violence is a public health crisis of epidemic proportions. One in three women and one in seven men will experience abuse. At Raphael House of Portland... We are working to change that. Raphael House has offered emergency shelter and a safe haven for families fleeing violence for over 40 years. Our mission is to help survivors build the safe, independent lives they deserve. 
and we're here every step of the way for as long as families need. Each year, we serve more than 400 survivors, half of whom are children. Now they're growing up in safe, violence-free homes. But we don't only respond to domestic violence. We want to stop it from ever happening. That is why prevention is a part of everything we do. We help families, plus thousands of teens in local schools, learn about consent and equitable relationships, so that one day, no one will need our services. If you or a loved one needs to talk to an advocate, you are not alone. Our confidential hotline is available 24-7 at 503-222-6222. Visit us at www.raphaelhouse.com to learn more, access resources, get involved, or make a donation. Because no one deserves to be hurt by someone they love. And together, we can build a future without domestic violence. So, uh, I am here this afternoon with John Cole, who uh, actually has been working in Portland theater for quite a while. I've, I've worked with John on a couple of shows myself, um, uh, but I know that, I mean, I think if you've worked at all the big theaters in town, for sure. Um, so, we're super happy to ha have you. Hi, John. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so, John, you've obviously been working with uh, stage combat and stage violence for a long time. Do you want to tell me, tell me a little bit about your, your history with it, how you came to it and what your training is? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I was lucky enough in uh, undergraduate to just fall in with a professor who had some stage combat training. And then he ended up leaving that uh, appointment and I was the next person who had sort of the most amount of training and uh, started to, end up doing choreography gigs right away. And so from there, it really became a process of trying to learn as much as I could um, informally and formally and uh, get trained up to, to start doing that work. So almost 30 years later, uh, I am a fight director and certified teacher and a theatrical firearms safety instructor with the Society of American Fight Directors. Um, I'm the only person to hold that title between... Uh, between LA and Seattle, actually. Um, wow. yeah, you know, it's all, it's <laughs> within the SAFD. There are a lot of other unaffiliated, you know, fight choreographers who know ah, their stuff and you. do great work and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and I've been working in professional Portland theater since 2003 or four, I think something like that. My first, right on. first professional gig up here, I think was actually at profile a million years ago. So, um, what show was yeah. that? Burn this. Oh, yeah. right. Oh, four, oh, five, oh, six, somewhere yeah, in there. Sure. I don't even remember. Yeah. Alfred Wilson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So that's, that's kind of me. I've been a resident artist at uh, Artist Rep since 2019, but I've been hired season by season there since the 2009, 2010 season. So um, that's kind of my home company. But Great. Um, yeah, work. Uh, and before we go into the other stuff that we're going to talk about, I'm curious yeah. about this. Uh, you were saying in school, there was a teacher, there was this teacher who was in stage comedy. Were you, were you studying to be an actor at first? Yeah. Or gotcha. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, <laughs> uh, approaching my later years in life now. So it's been a while ago, but, uh, yeah, I actually went to college on a full ride for music and then, uh, discovered the theater because the theater and music departments were in the same building. And, um, so came to it like most people do through acting. Um, although the hook for me as a, as a kid from the sticks who was, you know, fond of, machinery and tools and stuff like that was actually strike. That was the thing that got me into, 
into theater, came upstairs at midnight one night and they were tearing down this massive set. And I was like, what you really, you do this. That's amazing. How do I, can I help? You know, that wasn't what I expected you to say next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. So I, I did, uh, I was an actor and then went to grad school for, uh, for theater to teach really. So I have a master's in the teaching of acting and a directing and excuse me, and a PhD in uh, the teaching of directing. That's what my publication is on is, um, is on that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah, moved ahead from there. So my my W two job is uh, I'm the department chair uh, of the theater department at Willamette University down south in Salem, and um, most of my time is spent actually teaching directing, theater history, stage combat. I'm kind of a generalist. I teach solo performance, devising, all that all that stuff. So yeah, what do you think is your special attraction to stage combat? Um, I've always been a mover. Um, the body is the core of everything that I do, whether it's trying to find truth in, in performance or whether it's um, trying to create and devise um, environments or uh, just move people around the space. And so uh, I've also been a, a martial artist for a very long time. Um, and so those kind of interests um, and that worldview, I think, led me into the pursuit of stage combat as something that really um, I find beauty in the choreography of fake violence, right? Abhor real violence, of course, but uh, there's real, there's real beauty uh, looking at that from both my background, like I said, as a, as a movement person, and then also um, really well done combat work usually is scored almost like music in that as well you know tempo rhythm something i talk about a lot with with folks and um sort of beats and uh using those kinds of timings and things like that too so um yeah so that's that's the thing i think what do you think are like like um can you talk a little bit about the the challenge of creating stage combat in a world uh that that exists side by side with you know film combat Mm mm-hmm um, you mean the sort of the challenges of, um, well, uh, yeah. Okay. Let me, let me run with that. I think it's an interesting thing, right? Um, film has a different production model and, uh, and they have, um, a different set of expectations in terms of the level of, we could call it realism, I guess, um, for violence and things like that. Uh, and we also, when we're working on film too, it's only, it's something that we really only have to get that one take, right? Once we get it in the can, then we're okay and we can move on. Hmm. And with theater, especially professional theater, especially with the way, the kind of care and the approach that we try to take with everybody who's, um, in the room there in the live theater, we got to make sure that we can do that eight shows a week for, you know, five or six weeks or whatever. And so, um, that I think is really Primarily the difference there is it's a, it's a process and actor focused, um, medium, I think in terms of choreographing stage combat for live performance. Um, whereas when we're looking at film work, um, it seems like that the the expectation there is really more about that final product. And as long as we can get that one, that one, in the one in the can, then we're okay. So, yeah. Right on. Um, so, uh, seeing how you've been doing it for 30 years, it feels like you've done all the stage combat from like fist fights and sword fights and to gunfights. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, yeah. And that's part of the certified teacher thing I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier too. We have eight weapons, um, discipline, excuse me, eight weapon disciplines that we, uh, ah. we can teach certification, you know, fights and, and do those kinds of things. Um, so you can get certified from the SAFD and like 
unarmed combat and knife and sword and shield and all the other things. Um, and we also offer, uh, like I said, this, this, uh, theatrical firearms training as well. So, um, those are, those are some kind of options there in terms of the styles, but, um, yeah, so I've, the, the career I've led, uh, has had me choreographing just about anything you can imagine found objects as well too, right? Like chains and <laughs> right staplers on. and, you know, all that stuff. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so Gloria, of course, um, has gun violence in it. Yep. Um, uh, so what is like the approach that you take with that? Yeah. So gun violence, especially right now, um, is something that we're easing back into, right? We're all sort of trying to figure out, I think, what violence is like in a live space again. And so looking at this really carefully. Uh, what do you mean again? Coming back to um, live. live theater after, you. you know, 22 months of, of uh, <laughs> I know some, there's been some, some performance work happening, but it really feels like we're just starting to uh, get back into 100%. Yeah. Real performance. So that's been the thing, I guess, is, um, for me coming back out of, uh, out of the circumstances of the pandemic and trying to tell these stories, um, through choreography of violence, and then also trying to acknowledge where we are, you know, the, the socio-political shift as you, uh, you were talking about before we went live, I think, um, the changes that have happened for us culturally as well in terms of the way that we view a process and frame violence, I think are very, very different. And so with Gloria, uh, where we have, um, a workplace shooting and some very, um, very intense interpersonal violence, um, that's also gun violence. Uh, that approach was something that really needed some careful consideration. And it led, um, it led us to also as a production team, really consider broadly all of our options in terms of um, the scale of realism in this and, and how to balance telling the story that, that the playwright wanted us to tell as well as sort of meeting our audiences where they are right now coming out of the pandemic, coming out of the, uh, out of the sociopolitical conditions of the last 22 months as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. So trying to go in with our eyes wide open and delicately and, and all of that. Uh, so like, like what did you land on? Well, we kind of ran the gamut. Um, what we ended up with is using uh, gas-powered blowback um, replica props. So they're they're ones that are uh, they look like um, the real thing. They they feel like the real thing. They articulate the same way as a real firearm would as well. So they have moving parts that do all the things that you would expect a, a gun of that make and model to do. But the internals on them are all run through gas, um, through pneumatics. And so uh, they can't chamber or fire any kind of real ammunition. Um, there, of course, is no ammunition on site as well anyway. But um, they can't chamber and fire anything that even resembles a, a live powder-actuated projectile or bullet, uh, anything like that. Um, and they're also a lot more user friendly in terms of um, the actors being able to operate them as well. They're they're just uh, a little easier to use with that as well. But in terms of staging, we're following exactly the same protocols that we would use if we were using the most dangerous possible option, you know, uh, or live blanks or any of those things right. too. We follow all exactly the, all the same rules and do all of our handoffs the same way and and all of those things. Um, even though what we're using is an object that really is uh, more or less impossible to injure someone with. Um, 
unless I suppose they dropped it on themselves or something. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So that's, that was really, um, that's the way that we ended up going with the props. And then, um, we've got an amazing sound design, uh, that's going to back that up. And we're, it's sort of like, honestly, approaching like, uh, staging a musical in terms of sure. the cueing and the sound and the action on stage. It sounds yeah. very magic of theater. Yeah. 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 And all that starts this week. <laughs> right on. Mm. Right on. Um, uh, one question, which I didn't actually bring up to you before. I'm just yeah. going to bring this on you is, do you have a thought? What is your, what is it like, because even before the, the recent events that happened in New Mexico on that movie set, mm -hmm. um, we live in an era where, um, yeah, I don't know, uh, uh, like to use a really grotesque phrase, like, like these mass shootings have become almost like a fad. It's this thing that we see yeah. all the time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is the responsibility of the artist you feel in a situation when we present that kind of thing. Um, uh, just that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That, and it's such a great question. And, um, and I'm also really happy to say, uh, and I'm proud of the production team on this, on this project too. We really started there. Um, I think the core is to try to meet the audience where they are and then hmm. to, to find the essential elements of the story that need to be told. And then, figure out a way to communicate that to the audience in a way that preserves the, the theatrical reality of the situation while also letting folks know what's happening in advance. If they want, you know, trauma cues and, and warnings or specifics about what's happening, there's messaging that profile is putting out about that. Um, you can, you can find out that information on their website, um, including videos that I've already shot that are uh, of, you know, going through the props and showing everybody how they work and what they are, all that wow. stuff. Um, and also, you know, we're storytellers and we don't want to ruin the surprise there as well. So if folks are like, you know what, I'm okay. I know there's generally, there's some violence in this, but I want to allow myself to go into this without knowing what the specifics of those things are. We're not going to um, force those things on the audience as well. Right. But we're trying to really, I would say kind of triple down on safety practices with all of it and, um, and then be really consistent in our messaging about what the audience can expect, how we've been um, behaving or what our protocols are in process uh, and performance, and then just double and triple checking all of our safeties and redundancies and things like that to make sure that what we're doing is of a standard of safety that's so far beyond what the actual need is that we're really taking care of our people. Um, and that's backstage. That's the folks who are on stage, either facing those props or handling those props. And it's also our audiences, right? We want to, again, we want to tell a good story and also really want to make sure that everybody's coming to that, to that conversation, to that place of communion that is the theater in a way that they feel prepared and safe. Right. Right on. Well, thanks, John. I have to say, you know, as an artist, like I said, who's worked with you a few times uh, in my own life, you've always, you know, and your reputation is of a super responsible guy. Mm -hmm. um, and the thing is, like, when you're responsible this way, that leaves the artist all the space they need to be creative, you know. Um, That's the hope. So your work is super appreciated. And well, thank you for that. And yeah. thank you for uh, joining me this afternoon. You bet. Thanks for having me. It was awesome. And so, folks, that was John Cole, uh, stage combat choreographer extraordinaire. And what we're going to listen to right now is we're going to listen to a few minutes of him working with the actors uh, on some of that work. Um, there's not going to be a lot of, like, gunshots or anything like that. 
but you're just going to hear some of the, the work happening. Okay, and so we will take that away right now. We have all the things. I have all the things. All right, everybody. It seems like we are ready to try another water run. Uh, during this run, we'll do all of the effects, including gun, um, except for Nick's bladder. There we go. And the focus for this one, y'all, uh, on your side of things, is just about finding the intentions of the whole thing. And then, like I was saying, let's find, let's figure out kind of the scoring of this in terms of the breathing, the raggedness of breath, the screams, the whines, the whimpers. Let's start, start feeling out that soundscape a little bit in that. And I may be wandering around just to check um, the the traffic of the muzzle on there too. Yeah. One last time, Josh. Yep. Okay. Go right ahead, please. All right, Jaron, from your line. Yeah, but I don't know if I'm really interested in publishing. I mean, it seems like you guys have it pretty hard. Everyone here is so miserable. But anything you ever read about anything exciting to do or anywhere exciting to be, people aren't miserable. They're excited, you know. Excited? How about the hell? What is? Uh, aggressive hubbub. It's coming from back checking. Somebody should give door tell them to shut the fuck up. Pop. Whoa. Pop, pop. What was that? Bang, bang, bang. Bang. Dean. Miles? All right, folks, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back with Amanda Soden. Compassion, the desire to help. It's part of Portland's DNA. It's also at the heart of what Central City Concern does every day. Last year, they helped over 13,000 people experiencing or at risk for homelessness get back on track, providing health care, housing, and employment opportunities. But they can't do it alone. Go to their website at centralcityconcern.org to learn how you can be part of the solution. All right, uh, and next up, we have um, one of my good, good friends uh, in life, Amanda Soden. Uh, good afternoon, Amanda. Hi, Bobby. Um, and Amanda, uh, wanted to tell you, uh, the audience a little bit um, about who you are and about your background and how you wound up here today. 
You got it. Uh, well, I'm a very, uh, very proud to be an actor and have been an actor uh, much of my life. But I'm excited to be here with you today in my role as a licensed professional counselor in the state of Oregon. Um, I've been a therapist since 2017, sort of a third career uh, that I started in my 30s. Um, and so I'm excited to talk a little bit about the mental health topics that are sort of part of this piece, part of right. this play. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's totally funny that, that you like, uh, dropped that last one in there. Um, because like, like when we talked about this, one of the things that you had said was that, um, uh, a, a lot of times kind of like what, what, cause obviously in Gloria, um, uh, this, this heinous crime happens. And uh, it's uh, gun violence and um, uh, it's, and it's a mass shooting that happens a lot. And, you know, of course, in our country, there's a huge debate around it. Um, and over and usually that uh, and, and you said this and that uh, usually the conversation um, happens around uh, gun control. But that recently in the past few years, you see more and more people try and make it about mental health issues and how you thought that that was a mistake. That you know, and a, and a bad choice, and it's like um, a bit of a red herring. I think was the term you used. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking back to after the Columbine, excuse me, not the Columbine shooting, the um, oh, Sandy Hook, Sandy Hook. Thank you, um, the Sandy Hook shooting, and there was so much in the media and in the conversation about the shooter's mental health. Um, and it's true that he did struggle with severe mental illness, but we start talking about, we've started talking more recently about more mental health resources after these events. And it drives me crazy because there are loads and loads of people who struggle with mental health symptoms. We have a whole stigma in the culture still to this day about being open about mental health uh, uh, struggles about seeking treatment for them. And then now we're saying, oh, well, you know, these folks who do these mass shootings, they had mental health struggles. It's like, wait, you know, I, th does that demonize everybody who's got anxiety, depression, any other mental health symptoms? Um, is it fair that many of these folks have mental health struggles? Yes. But um, those would be like severe mental health struggles, like very extreme. And so I just I get irritated um, with this general topic because I do I do think it's a red herring. It's it's um, this is not systemically happening in the United States because um, someone has mental health struggles. That's it's just a way gotcha. oversimplification right. of what's happening. All right. And, and that's a very, uh, you know, almost delicate reframing that you just did, you know, um, uh where cause I hadn't thought about it quite like that because the, like because the equation then that people are making is that um, you know all this like murder and death is happening because people are having mental health struggles, which is not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, that's that's complex. That's complex, and and it's and it's, and it's interesting because um, uh, like 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 as as we're talking about it, I'm thinking, you know, because. Um, you know, mental health, people who struggle with mental health issues are, you know, also encompass the full spectrum of humanity. So you have good people who have uh, mental, who struggle with mental health issues and bad people as well. Um, and, and sometimes it's like when we, when we're choosing to, um, to, to demonize or paint with a broad brush, you know, like, like this, this, this entire spectrum of, of humanity all becomes like one thing. That, that we feel like it would be should be easy to shut down or to deal with when actually it's never going to be 
Totally. Like if we make the the comparison with with like physical health issues, it's like saying, oh, you know, this this guy did this mass shooting. And by the way, he also had cancer. Right. They're, they have nothing to do with each other in, in, in most cases. Got you. Yep. Um, and, you know, like one of uh, you know, the play uh, Gloria um, is uh, it's super interesting to play in a, in a, in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, it has uh, Jacob Jenkins usual like intelligence and wit and it's funny. Um, uh, and um, and almost like, you know, and there's a lot of acid in the play between the, the characters, between each other. Um, but one of the real narrative busting uh, aspects of it is that uh, a woman is the one responsible for this heinous crime. Um, which we uh, just don't see a lot of um, in real life. You know, it's, you know, it's like, I mean, you know, if, if I say, you know, when you just say like mass shooting, you think about the past few years, I think most people and most people listening to this, like the first image that's going to come into the head, is going to be a male image. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, why do you think that in real life, if women are going to act out, this is not typically the way they're going to act out? Yeah, it's interesting because there's no there's no research done on that for one. Um, because in mass shootings, ninety eight percent of mass shootings are done by males, so it's only two percent that happen that are perpetuated by females. So it's, that's uh, statistically insignificant. So no one's done any research per se on like women in mass shootings. So there is research on men, and so I'm just going to talk about that briefly first before I, I jump to your question. Um, so in in some of the research that's that's been done, even as a feminist, I was getting super defensive over men of, about this. Actually, it was this idea that um, men predominantly engage in these violent crimes because um, men don't have as much empathy as women. Um, men are naturally more violent. Um, men are far less likely to reach out for help. And one of the other ones that I thought was interesting and does make sense is that for thousands of years, men have been rewarded when they are violent and aggressive. Hmm. If we think of like Great Britain and the sun never set on the British Empire, like this little country went and was violent around the world and was rewarded, you know, uh, for that. So but when I say all of those things, it makes me deeply sad because I think, my God, what kind of a world and a culture have we created for men that they aren't able to ask for help, that they don't think to ask for help, that they are rewarded when they're aggressive. So we've created this culture where violence is not only acceptable for men, it's it's prized. It's like, this is how we know you're man enough is that you're violent. Absolutely. I remember uh, being like at Fred Meyer or Safeway, whoever it is, the grocery store, um, and they had those the red boxes, the videos. Yeah. I remember like standing in line and looking at... Um, the um, display of the videos. And I remember it was like Clive Owen with a gun and Mark Wahlberg with a gun um, and uh, Sean Penn with a gun and like George Clooney with a gun. And then for a little variety, there was Denzel Washington with a gun. Mm. Right. And I remember like at the time being like, we are never going to get rid of of guns in this country Mm -hmm. because they are obviously a symbol of male virility and, you know, 
general hotness. Absolutely. It's like you have to be able to destroy stuff. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. And some of that is so cultural because, of course, like my mind's been blown open by this conversation recently. Wow. And listen to the imagery I just used. My mind's been blown open. Right. So right there. Um, Because we think about the fact that Canada as a country has more guns per capita than the United States. We don't see these mass shootings in Canada. So there's also this big cultural piece of what it means. What? I didn't know that. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. So there's a big American element to this, too. I read a fascinating study um, that was in the British Journal of Psychiatry um, from 2014. It was talking now I'm going to slightly like muddy the waters here because it was a mental health study of people who have psychosis. And psychosis is often when you have um, you either seeing things that aren't there. Or you're having voices in your head kind of telling you to do things. And in this study of Americans with psychosis, 70 percent of them said that those voices were urging them to commit violent acts. But for folks in India with psychosis, only 20 percent of them reported that the voices told them to do something violent. And in Ghana, it was only 10 percent. So this is highly huh. cultural as well. So there's just I'm just going to add like another fun little element to this that we have a culture to your point I think excellently well made that supports and um, extols violence just in general, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, you know and I feel like um, you know so often in the reporting and the information that comes out afterwards when uh, when these terrible things happen is that you know this was a way for this person to become famous or to get clout or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, which is, uh, which is like so horrifying, you know, um, it is, they've, they've, they've done research showing that as the media has changed their coverage of these over time, it used to be, you know, speaking of Columbine from back in the day, cause I was just in college when that happened and it was so shocking. I just remember thinking like no one had ever witness something like that, like kids killing kids in, in that kind of a way. But there was so much talk about the two kids who who did the mass shooting. Um, and so a lot of folks realized, oh, if they were predisposed to do something like that, I'm going to really be seen, heard, like everyone's going to know my name. Everyone's going to see my picture. And now the media has actually done better about like not giving so much airtime, airplay to the perpetrators and a lot more to the victims. And you've actually seen like numbers of mass shootings go down a little bit in connection to that, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it's and one of the, you know, fascinating aspects of the play, I feel like, is um like why we make art about this, you know, this horrible crime, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, crimes in general and like, and, and, and what is like the artist's responsibility? Um, the, the guy who did that mass shooting in Australia that then resulted in Australia, you know, banning guns and yeah. uh, they've had no mass shooting since. Um, uh, but I remember uh, like, like, like 11 years ago, maybe, or maybe like nine years ago, there was some artist who had a painting, a landscape, and he won, he won a contest for it, for it, but it was highly controversial because he put this serial killer, the Martin Bryant guy, like at the, at the, at the, for, in the, in the foreground of the painting. And people were like, why would you do that? You know, um, and I, and I feel like there's always this, uh, what this dichotomy, this like, you know, like this, this, um, this thing that artists are dealing with and you're, you're like, what, you know, like, because of, cause I personally feel like, like, if, like if you make a movie about drug addiction, period, you're kind of glamorizing it. 
you know, mm. and like, like, like the, the grittier, the more like realistic you make it, the more you're kind of glamorizing it, you know? Um, uh, and so I did like, I just, I just wonder about, um, you know, what is the artist's responsibility to this kind of stuff? And, um, uh, and like, what does that do, you know, to us yeah. as a culture, Yeah, you know? You know, how does it perpetuate us? Mm. Um, or even normalize it, right? Because now, it. you know, since Columbine, I I don't have that shock response anymore. I go, oh, another mass shooting. Ah, uh, the kid who sh shot mm -hmm. the kids in, in Michigan. Mm -hmm. I kept on scrolling. Yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, great. Another one. And yeah. that doesn't mean we don't care, right? But we're desensitized to it now. Yeah. yeah. And I know that's in the media and, and not to your excellent point about in art, but then, yeah, like, what is the duty do we, we have? I, you know, but it's, same, it's, it's almost the same question though, right? Yeah. You mm -hmm. know, um, uh, like what, is, you know, and like what kind of what you were talking about, what is the media's responsibility? Mm -hmm. You know, how, you know, how do we, you know, talk about these things, um, you know, in, in a way that doesn't make it attractive for the next guy to come along and be like, oh, well, you know, um, I can't write a book. I guess I'll kill a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I, I want to answer your question if that's okay, because uh, I steered us off topic, but uh, or on to interesting tangents of said topic. But the piece about why I think women don't do this, because um, when I was looking at the script and thinking, "Gosh, like how would you play a character like that? That you know, like how would you develop the motivation for that as an as an actress playing the character of Gloria?" Um, there's there's really very little source material for you, again, because women don't tend to do these crimes. And I was thinking about, you know, in terms of the research about men, that it feels like, you know, they need to be seen, they're misunderstood, they have an axe to grind, they need to, you know, enact some revenge, you know, they need to be seen and they're witnessed. Like, women were, were have never been raised in that way. So women have been raised to put their needs second, um, not even just to like men, but to other women. Right. It's it's um, it's kind of like this culturally expected thing that women are caregivers, that we're nurturers, that we we um, put our own needs second, third, fourth, last towards anybody else. And so I think if women, in fact, were like we're mad, we're feeling some righteous anger about something like this, um, they wouldn't feel entitled to act upon it in such a way. Right. Um, so it, it does make sense to me why we, we see it happen so rarely because violence in women is not prized in any way, shape or form. It is a bad thing. If a woman raises her voice, if a woman asks for what she needs or deserves, like already she's a bitch, she's strappy, she's a man hater, she's a feminist, she's all these things, <laughs> right? And it's so because any any and then I know that's not a new conversation, but you know, with men, that's there's such prized virtues. You know, if I go in and ask for a sure. raise, it's gonna my there's multiple studies that are gonna say that um I'm gonna be considered uppity. For asking for a raise and a guy is going to be like, oh, he's just getting what he's entitled to. Right. And so I think women don't even feel entitled to their own rage. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't say that. Never mind. I was going to say like, <laughs> does that give Gloria a, fe a feminist angle? You know, it's like, you know, she's like this hero because she does it. She's like, <laughs> she's like, you know what? I'm pissed. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's, I love that you said that though, because I do think like we, ironically, um, we are seeing like, 
violence as perpetuated by women start to enter into like cultural pieces like Angelina Jolie right now, Charlize Theron, like they're in these roles where they ass kick and they karate chop and they have guns. And so like what I feel like we're starting to give women permission to do that in the culture. So but the negative thing here is then does that mean we will now see an uptick and now <laughs> women will participate? And I feel that way about like as we started to address, for example, like body image in women and saying, what is this ridiculous standard that we have for women and women's bodies? What made me what's made me sad about it is you would think that as we had this conversation, we would make things easier for women and we'd make things easier for men. And like categorically over the last 10 years, things have been harder for men. Now it's like you've got to have the abs and you have to have the six pack and you have to like even if you're a dad, you have to have touch of gray. Like there's actually we've made it worse for men and not easier for women just on that piece. So I know that's kind of a weird link, but. It's funny, I think as a culture, when we start to address these things, we actually make them worse for a while before they get better. So I do hope we don't see an uptick in female mass shooters, <laughs> um, especially because as a feminist, I get a little bit on the moral high ground about this. I'm like, mm-hmm, see? Right. Yeah, right. If women ran the world, this would not be the case, right? We wouldn't have all these shootings. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> Great. Um, and I think on that note... Uh, of course, this has been a super fun conversation. Um, thank you so much, Amanda, for stopping in and uh, and sharing with us your always fascinating brain, you know, and um, I'll see you around. Thanks, Bobby B. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It was. <laughs> and that is it for this edition of Satellite Beyond the Page. Thank you to Kelsey Ashenbrenner, John Cole, and Amanda Soden. And thank you to our production team, Jamie M. Ray, Lion Producer, Robert A.K. Gagno, Sound Engineer, Matt Weens, Composer, Sam Mowry, Recording Engineer. And all of this was done at the Willamette Radio Workshop in Portland, Oregon, which exists on the traditional lands of Multnomah, Kaflamet, Clackamas, Tumwater, and Malala Bands of the Chinook peoples, the Tualatin Band of the Kalapuya peoples, and many other tribes who made their homes along the Columbia River. We acknowledge and honor the ancestors and survivors of this place and recognize that we are here because of the sacrifices forced upon them. And we honor their descendants who live on. And I am Bobby Bermea. Thank you for joining us for Satellite to Beyond the Page. To hear more podcasts, go to profiletheater.org slash on air, where you'll find other episodes of Satellite Beyond the Page, as well as our community podcast, Voices from the Real World. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, I'm taking all comers. Write me at bobbyb at profiletheater.org. One love and peace out. <laughs>